You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about a new asset class. This is episode, I believe, 169. And we're still talking about new asset classes that we've never discussed on the show. We're talking about litigation finance. And joining me today is Eva Shang, CEO at Legalist. Eva, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And I always get excited to talk about a new asset class. Of course, I love talking about, you know, multifamily or private credit for the fifth or sixth or seventh time, but there's nothing like the first time. So you get to be our introduction to the world of litigation finance. And why don't we start there? What is litigation finance from the perspective of the alternative investment universe? Awesome. Um, put it simply, litigation finance is an equity investment into a lawsuit. So um, legalist does litigation finance at the lower middle market, meaning we look for small commercial lawsuits, breach of contract and business torts usually, where you have a plaintiff going up against a usually larger defendant, and they're looking for financing against the proceeds of their eventual claim. So you might have a plaintiff who's a small business approach us and say, you know, I'm looking for $500,000 or a million dollars to fight my case. And if I make 10 million uh, in a judgment in a couple of years, then you can get a sizable portion of that. And then on the other hand, it's non-recourse, which means that if the litigation fails, then the litigation funder is not entitled to their money back. So you can think of it as kind of an offshoot of uh, private credit that is um, tethered to a completely uncorrelated asset, but sometimes with equity-like returns. So that's really interesting. I mean, from what I had understood about um, lawsuits or, or litigation finance, I guess, was that uh, a potential client would approach an attorney or a law firm and the attorney would sort of judge the merits of the potential case. And then the law firm would sort of internally finance, you know, essentially work on uh, if the case is successful, they take a third or, or whatever. But this is actually the, the client coming directly to you or do the law firms sometimes come to you for the finance? So that's a great question. What you're referring to is called a contingency arrangement. Mm -hmm. So let's say you get into a car accident and you have a personal injury claim. Um, what you might do then is you might go to a personal injury attorney and they would do your case for free and then take a third of the judgment uh, if you're successful. Now, this really only exists for things like personal injury, where a lawyer can take on a portfolio of say hundreds of cases mm -hmm. and spread their risk out that way. It doesn't really exist in the commercial realm. So let's say that your company were to be bought or your company were to uh, be in a joint venture agreement with another company and you're entitled to money that um, you haven't collected, there's not really going to be an, uh, an attorney who's willing to work up $500,000 or a million dollars worth of uh, billings and take a very uncertain outcome when their entire portfolio is only, you know, three or four cases at a time. And so that's really where litigation finance comes in. Uh, so most litigation funders get approached either by the client or by the attorney, and then they'll finance 
the billings of that attorney on an hourly basis and then get paid when the case resolves. Um, Legalist does it a little bit differently, which I can talk about, but that's sort of the overview of how the asset class works. Okay. Yeah. And so just to delve a little bit deeper, yeah, I should have known the word contingency, but so those tend to be, that sort of arrangement is more common in like, I don't want to say assembly line type of legal cases, but kind of in that, that, but, 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 you know, if you have a hundred car accidents uh, that you're a plaintiff's lawyer in over a course of two years, there's going to be lots of patterns. And even in terms of settlements, there's going to be like a fairly predictable um, sometimes even in the legal code, right? Like in terms of uh, awards given for successful outcomes, it's just more like templated and more because there's a exactly. higher. So in commercial law with like some of these kind of contractual disputes, I'd imagine everyone's non-compete is different. Everyone's joint venture agreement is different. You know, like all of these are kind of one-off things where there's there's less of a pattern. So is, is that essentially why it's all, you know, customized? Uh, so that's one reason that lawyers don't take commercial breach of contract cases on contingency. Uh, another reason is just that the amounts in dispute are much larger. The cases take a lot longer to settle and uh, law firms are not set up to ha- kind of have the kind of cash flow by which they could finance these internally. So the average investment for a legalist is somewhere around a million dollars. So you you would be asking a law firm if they were to take your case on contingency to just have a million dollars of receivables on their book for a period of two to three years. Now that's asking a lot for an individual attorney. So that's really where litigation finance comes in and gets them paid on a monthly basis, every single invoice on time within 30 days. And then for the client, they get essentially the benefit of having their case on contingency. And I, I feel like there maybe is a joke in there somewhere about attorneys. I have several pretty close friends who are attorneys, and some of them have even told me there's a lot of high income, high earning attorneys that don't necessarily have very strong personal balance sheets. So I'm guessing that's the case maybe with a lot of you know boutique law firms. But all jokes aside, I understand that's just a valid need for for financing, right? Because um, otherwise, it's going to be very hard to bring a case, even if you have pretty good odds, just because can't access the capital, you need to finance the case. It would, it would be, you know, that kind of um, commercial claim could be very hard, challenging to bring. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So we actually see litigation finance as an access to justice issue as much as it is financing. Um, The most prototypical case that we see, you know, I'd say fall into two categories. One is a joint venture agreement. And the second is an acquisition agreement. So those are the most prototypical transactions where disputes arise out of them. Um, So one scenario that we see often is, you know, let's say I have a small company, ABC Corp, and I enter into a a joint venture with a large company where I'm meant to do some share of the work and then we're meant to split the profits. Um, It's actually very much in the large company's incentive to not pay me what I'm owed because they'll assume that I don't have the money to pay for a lawyer to initiate a lawsuit. And that's and why you always you. want earnouts to be a very small portion of any sort exactly. of exit entrepreneurship. <laughs> Trust me, I'm on your page. But to your point, earnouts yeah. often are a big component of exactly. exit. And, and then they get messy. I mean, that's kind of why I hate them, to be honest, is because they get messy and it's you can kind of play the blame game and, and from both sides, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that's 
where litigation finance comes in. So um, when a litigation funder gets involved, the plaintiff, usually a small business or a business owner, they get the benefit of a third party looking at their case and saying, hey, this looks meritorious. This is the range of damages we think you're going to get. And we're going to put our money into it. And if the case is unsuccessful, then uh, we won't make it back. Luckily, Legalist has around an 80% batting average. So four out of five cases, we're pretty good at spotting. Um, But, you know, with any lawsuit, there's some measure of human judgment that comes into it at the end of the day in front of the judge or in front of the jury. Um, So there's no litigation funder that bats a thousand. But like any kind of personal injury attorney, a litigation funder has the benefit of having their risk spread out across many, many cases. And uh, we're able to kind of ride that out for the one-fifth of cases that don't win. So if I'm thinking about Legalist or your team, you must have just as much legal chops and expertise in uh, commercial settlements as you do with you know finance. You know, Are you a legal firm that happens to be in finance or are you a financial firm that happens to be in the legal space? Uh, that's a great question. So it's actually uh, neither. So um, the way that Legalist was founded, I, and I'm one of the co-founders, uh, my co-founder and I actually dropped out of Harvard in 2016 to start the company. Um, we took the company through Y Combinator, which is a Silicon Valley startup accelerator. So we are, we're actually a tech firm in our DNA. And the initial technology that we developed here at Legalist, what it does is it crawls public court dockets. And eventually we expanded to other types of government databases as well. And we looked for cases that looked meritorious. They were uh, in favorable venues. They had the right kind of counterparty. They were the right case type and they were procedurally advanced. So they had survived major dispositive motion hurdles. And when we raised our first litigation finance fund in 2017, um, our pitch to investors was that we could find these cases and we can invest in them. And that could generate disproportionate alpha uh, to our investors as compared to if we just sat on our hands and waited for lawyers and cases to approach us. Uh, And that's really how Legalist got started. So we started with just a $10 million fund um, with some lawyers on staff. And today we manage close to a billion dollars. And we have three different asset classes that we fund internally, all using our proprietary technology. But litigation finance um, is the one that we started out with and the one that we have around 500 million of assets in. So it's really um, uh, our flagship fund and uh, something that we pride ourselves on as being one of the market leaders today. Okay, so you developed this algorithm. I mean, so right away, I'm like, wow. When people tell me they drop out of Harvard and then you mentioned Y Combinator. I'm like, okay, I'm talking with a very intelligent person right now. So you created this technology. That sounds amazing. Really creative. I mean, that's just awesome. But my question in the context now of Legalist, you mentioned you do you did have attorneys on staff. So that is this the technology, the the algorithm, so to speak, that's sorting through these cases? And then is there still that human review standpoint where you have the experienced attorney kind of uh take that is it like a second filter that's a human filter or, or how do you kind of winnow down the cases yeah there's absolutely a still attorney review involved um so to, to give you a sense of perspective uh how many cases how many civil lawsuits uh would you say are filed every year in um state and federal courts in the united states just to guess no looking up uh five hundred thousand. 
Um, it's actually about a hundred million. Uh, some years it's closer to around <laughs> 80 million. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, right. that's right. Um, there is a lot of litigation in the United States. We are the yeah. most litigious country in the world. Now, granted, most of these are not relevant to us. Mm. So a lot of them are mortgage foreclosures or small claims or collections lawsuits. Um, those are all lawsuits. They all go through the court system. And we're just not interested in any of these. So the technology's job is to filter down the, the 80 to 100 million civil lawsuits filed every year down to just a few hundred thousand that are large enough, that are procedurally advanced enough, that are litigated by parties we'd be interested in doing business with. And that's the stage that the technology works at. Now, these few hundred lawsuits are litigated by um, only about 10 to 20,000 attorneys. And you can imagine why this is the case. Each attorney has more than one lawsuit on their plate in order to stay in business. Um, and these are the attorneys that we have a close relationship with, that we reach out to regularly, that we've spoken to, that know about our services. Now, from there, financing a lawsuit is not as simple as clicking on one of the lawsuits we've identified and then just putting any amount of money we would like into them. You know, the plaintiff needs to opt in. They need to say, yes, I have a need. They need to say, these are my damages and this is how much money we're looking for. Even if we correctly identified a million dollar lawsuit, if we invested $2 million into it, we've just made a net loss of a million dollars. So that's really where our attorneys on staff uh, are so important. So what we do in-house is look at three things. First is liability. So is a case going to be successful? The second is damages. If it's going to be successful, how much is it really going to be successful for? And that's realistically, because every plaintiff thinks that their case is worth a billion dollars. And we have a joke internally that if we added together all the billion dollar lawsuits we see every year, you'd get a number that's greater than the GDP of the entire country. Uh, that's how many people have billion dollar lawsuits, supposedly. Yeah. So of course, we have to come to our own assessment of how much the damages are worth. And then the final metric that people don't really think about often is collectability. So let's say that um, someone has supposedly wronged you for a million dollars. Well, if they're bankrupt, if they don't have a million dollars, then what's the use of you having this million dollar lawsuit? There's nowhere to collect from. And so those latter two points are really where our underwriting team uh, digs deep. We're looking into um, how much the damages are realistically uh, in an earnout situation, to take that as an example. Um, there's usually some amount of flexibility in how the clause is written. So uh, if you hit these metrics, then you make this amount. If you hit these metrics, then you make an even greater amount. And so that's really where oftentimes the dispute lies. And so the plaintiff will obviously be claiming the largest possible amount, and the defendant will be claiming the lowest possible amount that's permitted in the agreement. And the reality is usually somewhere in between. Um, and that's what they call lawyer math which is that you take the greatest possible number and then you divide it by half and you get the realistic settlement number. Um, but that's sort of the analysis that our team performs internally, as well as looking at the collectability, the assets of the defendant. So short answer is yes, we do a lot of human review still to make sure that each investment we make is actually a good one. That sounds good. That sounds responsible and diligent, but it also sounds expensive. You know, the thing 
when, when people ask me about alternative investments, you know, hosting this show, I often say everyone likes to compare every type of investment to Vanguard, uh, like a <laughs> Vanguard index fund. And everyone likes to compare fees to the Vanguard expense ratios, you know, like five basis point fees. And I'm like, hey, look, in most of these alternative investment sectors, they require active management, they require diligence, they require underwriting, and then you need high quality people to do that. It gets very expensive. So sure, alternative investment and alternative asset managers, they do tend to have higher fees. They also tend to generate higher returns. And you're not really worried about the fees in the sense that um, they are going to required activities, right? Like like you wouldn't want to invest in 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 a fund like yours or in a multifamily fund or in a any kind of private credit fund where there wasn't good high quality underwriting. So in this case, I'm guessing everything that you talked about sounds good, the technology piece very efficient. Um but what kind of returns would justify all of this effort because what I'm hearing is like wow, this is a lot of effort to lend someone a million dollars, right? Like it's a lot of due diligence and underwriting effort. That's a great point. Um, litigation finance is most comparable to an equity investment because mm -hmm. you're taking a binary risk on the case itself. And as a result, we look for equity-like returns. So our historical returns have been um, greater than 2X on average for MOIC. and roughly a 20% net to investors. So it's roughly in line with private equity, although it's uncorrelated uh, and much shorter duration. So let's talk about that because um, you just kind of mentioned that casually. I actually think that's the headline for your entire sector, just, just personally, just as someone who covers the space. And the reason I say that, um, when I talk about alternative investments and Jimmy and I, we even give like a, you know, we kind of have our stock presentation that we give about alts that people will ask us to come speak. And we'll talk about alternative investments, the benefits of them, the major asset classes, yada, yada. The first benefit that we always mention is portfolio diversification, right? And I think that's why a lot of high net worth investors, a lot of institutional investors, a lot of advisors invest in, all, in, in alternatives is because of that. But somewhere I think that the message sometimes gets lost when asset managers imply or sometimes even outright claim that they're they're not correlated to the market that you know this asset class or this sector is not correlated to the traditional markets and usually i like to try and clarify it might be less correlated it might be partially correlated usually it's not negatively correlated right but there's still some correlation this sector to me seems very unique and that I can't see how it would be correlated at all to the traditional public markets. Yeah, I think that litigation finance's lack of correlation is one of its major selling points. Uh, you're looking at um, private equity-like returns, but without the market risk of private equity. The main thing that litigation finance returns swing on is the merit of the claim itself. And um, that's something that throughout legalists, other strategies we've tried to maintain. Um, our goal is to be a firm that offers a menu of different risk liquidity options for investors that are all uncorrelated. So um, litigation finance is the most uncorrelated. Our second strategy is a dip financing strategy in bankruptcy court 
where we're collateralized by real assets, property, machinery, inventory. And then our final strategy is a government receivables lending strategy. So the folks that we lend to are owed money by the U.S. government itself. And our goal is uh, across all of these strategies to offer our LPs, um, whether they're looking for you know, income, as in um, an alternative to the bond market, we can offer something similar to that in the form of government receivables. If they're looking for more equity-like returns, um, we can offer something similar to that, but uncorrelated in the form of litigation finance. So I think this lack of correlation is, is one of the main selling points, and it's especially relevant for advisors um, and LPs these days who just can't rely on the 60-40 stocks and bonds ratio anymore because right. they all move together. And that wasn't the case when uh, all the textbooks were written, but it is the case now. So if you want anything that's uh, going to move in a different direction, you have to look towards alts. Right. And, you know, my thing is just because something is less liquid and it's not trading day to day doesn't necessarily mean it's uncorrelated, right? You kind of have to do the the whole logic thing and think it through, you know, with, with private debt and public debt or, you know, private equity and public equities, those things are often linked. Maybe the private equity doesn't trade day to day in the way that public equities do, but they're still linked conceptually. Whereas to your point, this kind of, uh, rises and falls with the success of the litigation, right? Which is that's, that's not going to ebb and flow with the market. Um, so, you know, you mentioned it was a, a big component of the appeal of legalists and, and of your, your fund and your investment strategy. I mean, to me, that is like the main hook is the, is that uncorrelation? Is that the main hook or story that that grabs investors and kind of pulls them in? Or is it is it something else? Like, what is that main hook that really grabs people when you're telling the legalist story? Um, that's a great question. I mean, we have been one of those funds that experienced tremendous growth over a pretty short amount of time. But I think that uh, the, the main hook for investors for us to date has been the fact that we just think about alpha generation in a completely different way. So instead of starting from a starting place, which is um, how do people manage their money and what are the asset classes they could be investing in, the starting point that Legalist always um, starts from is where can we have a structural advantage using technology and where can we make investments where it just makes sense why there's a need for money in this market. And if you really believe the efficient markets hypothesis, there's no way for any investment fund to sustain an advantage over time unless they're able to find deals and underwrite deals that no one else can. And that's really where all of our assets come from. And that's what our technology is centered around. We want to uncover a structural advantage uh, in the litigation finance market. And the fact that litigation finance itself is so off the beaten track as an asset class is just the starting point. Well, and that's where, um, um, I mean, you're mentioning all my favorite concepts here. So I'll, I'll try not to take us too far off track, but I love talking about that efficient market theory. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I, I believe in it, but with some pretty big asterisks, right? In the sense that, you know, sometimes we're we were talking about ESG a little bit before I hit the record button. And I'm like, sometimes institutional investors aren't always investing just to maximize risk-adjusted returns. Sometimes there are other 
considerations in their investment mandate. So that's where, you know, efficient market theory might be different or, or with, you know, some of these asset classes, the way I like to think of it is when they get really big, when they get big enough, then the biggest asset managers go, okay, we, it's going to be cost efficient and, and worth our while to enter this space, right? Because at some point, these big asset managers that get so big, there are a lot of opportunities that just mm-hmm. aren't, wor- aren't worth it for them in the sense, you know, that, that, you know, like the largest institutional investors, they can't be investing a million or $5 million at a time. They need to invest 50 right. million or a hundred million at a time. And I think as- the same kind of thing for asset managers. So what I wanted to ask about in terms of litigation finance is, you know, how big is it or how niche is it? Is it, do you think it's something that your success is going to attract others into the field? Are there other firms like yours that are as large as you or even larger? Could you kind of contextualize the size of litigation finance for us? Yeah. So there are a couple of publicly traded litigation finance companies, um, Burford Capital, and then there's an Australian firm called Omni Bridgeway. Um, I think the market caps on those companies are anywhere from uh, a couple hundred million to a billion or a couple billion. So they're fairly small. There are a few other private litigation finance funds like ourselves. Uh, On the whole, it's still considered an extremely esoteric asset class. And the reason I think this is important uh, for us is um, to go back to the efficient markets hypothesis. Anytime you have a a competitive bidding situation, there's this concept known as the winner's curse, which means that if you're in an auction scenario, let's just pretend you're in an auction and you're bidding on a bicycle. If you have enough people participating in the auction, it's actually fairly likely that whatever price the bike is sold at will be too high relative to what the bike is worth. And it's almost impossible to uh, make investments without being subject to the winner's curse if you're in a competitive situation. So for legalists, not only do we have our technology, which allows us to not participate in those crowded auctions, but to create our own auction rooms. But so, also- so sorry, if I could, if I could just follow yeah. up on that. So you might be approaching someone offering to finance their lawsuit and it's either you guys or nothing. Like there's no one else offering to finance it. So that gives you leverage and pricing power. And until there is, there are other firms who are uncovering all of these same leads that you are, exactly. you, guys, you guys use your proprietary technology. Uh, it's a little, I don't want to say it's a captive market, but it's a little bit of, uh, you know, a, a little, a little niche that only, only you guys are accessing. Exactly. We're creating our own auction process where we're the only bidder. It's it's pretty good. You know, it's 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 pretty humbling. Um, you know, speaking with Harvard dropouts and 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 it's like you're intellectually running circles around me. But I I, I mean that this is so creative uh and obviously successful that I think it's amazing. But it but again, doing this kind of podcast, aren't there going to be people hearing this thinking, I got to get involved in litigation finance? Does it become, do you think does it does it ever grow big enough that it becomes an efficient market, you know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now? I think with any asset class, there is sort of a, a rise and asymptotic stabilization process. So litigation finance is still in the very early stages of that. You see private equity 
uh, originated in the 1980s. Lots of funds were built around that time. And litigation finance really only uh, came into vogue and people started managing more sizable amounts of capital uh, in the mid to late 2010s. So I still think it's pretty early innings for litigation finance. Now, by the time I'm uh, towards the end of my career, I'd be very surprised if there was still room for a litigation finance upstart in the market. Um, but by then, you know, every year there's a new crop of 20-year-olds that are dropping out of Harvard and starting companies. So by then there will be a new source of alpha in the market. And I just don't know what it is yet. Yeah, there's always a, there's always a little new corner. There's always a, a rock that somebody hasn't turned over. I mean, honestly, that's why I love running this show because Alternative Investment Podcast I can cover anything, right? Anything besides stocks, bonds, and cash, really. And and I'm always discovering, you know, new types of investments, new asset classes. Um, it's a real blessing of, of doing what I do. Well, I've heard about all the good things about litigation finance, and I think you alluded to this, but I want to make sure to ask it. When litigation finance goes wrong as an investment, mm -hmm. how does it go wrong? You know, as as a as an LP or as a financial advisor, if I'm looking into investing in this asset class, whether with Legalist or with, with anyone else, what is it that I, I need to be doing my due diligence on? Where, where would it go wrong? Yeah. So the place where I see uh, smaller advisors or family offices go wrong with litigation finance is they think they can do it themselves. And my, uh, my instinctual reaction whenever I hear anyone who is not a litigation funder as their job say, oh, I invested in a piece of litigation, uh, my instinctual reaction is, oh, no, that is not going to go well, right? Like each individual litigation is extremely risky. And the reason that litigation uh, gets such high returns is because it has the potential of going to com a complete zero. Right. And when we look at a, a case, the way that we look at it is always that if it goes to trial, even if you have the best case in the world, there's always a chance that someone on the jury is having a bad day. The judge just doesn't like the way that your suits fitted that day. Mm -hmm. And for any number of these very human reasons that are unrelated to the merits of your case, um, it could fail. And that's actually why you see lawyers rarely be involved in litigation themselves. Because um, lawyers who are familiar with litigation know that not only is it incredibly uh, time consuming and emotionally draining, and you're just consumed with fire this whole time, and it takes many, many years. But there's always a chance that it could go wrong randomly, even as it goes right randomly. So, as you see on the news, the news of all these billion dollar verdicts and hundred million dollar settlements, there's also a ton of cases that are meritorious, but for whatever reason, don't make it to that outcome. So I'd really, really caution against investing in a single litigation or a couple of litigations yourself, no matter how good it might look to you from the outside. Understood. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think that probably holds true for some other alternative investment sectors as well, right? You want to diversify. And to my point earlier, you know, fees, management fees are higher across the alternative investment landscape, but they need to be for there to be professional management. Right. And all of these, you know, and underwriting, you know, to your point, um, this is this is an inherently risky space. And, you, you know, you didn't shy away from saying we bat 80 percent, mm -hmm. um, you know, in certain other uh, sectors, like with bonds, if you say 80 percent of the bonds we invest in, you know, end up, <laughs> pay, you know, paying their coupon. 
that would be bad, but like that's built into your model, right? And and right. and the returns compensate for that level of risk, you know, I would assume. Um obviously right. they do or you wouldn't have amassed, you know, the the AUM that you have. Uh you know, I I know that you can't always talk about the things that you're working on. We're almost out of time here. But is there anything, you know, coming up ahead for Legalist in the next year or two or any projects that you're working on um, that you're excited about right now? Um, so I think, you know, across our three strategies, uh, litigation finance, government receivables and diff lending, um, we are uncovering a lot of opportunities and continue to grow each of these three. When I first started the company, uh, one of our advisors, a billionaire hedge fund manager, uh, came to our office and we asked him, you know, what advice do you have? What are your secrets to success? And he said, hire and retain great talent. And we were really disappointed. We were like, okay, I already knew that. And that's not actionable, right? Like, what am I meant to do with that? But um, the older I get and the longer I've been running this business, I realized that that is the only piece of advice that really matters. It's just one of those truisms that you can only appreciate once you have enough life experience. So that's one of those things, hiring and, and retaining great talent um, that I'm always working on and that I'm always excited by. Okay, so you guys are expanding, obviously, in three different sectors now. A lot of great stuff going on at Legalist. Eva, we're about out of time. I want to ask where our audience of high net worth investors, advisors, and family offices can go to learn more about Legalist and all of your offerings. Uh, so our website is legalist.com. We have a contact form on the website and Ryan, our amazing investor relations person, uh, reads every single message that comes our way. All right, Eva, thanks again for joining the show today. All right. Thanks, Andy. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.